Hi everyone, Matty Jackson back here with the Academy North from Behind the Lockdown podcast, back with Stephen Cole. How are you, Steve? Very good, pal. How are you doing? Yes, very well, thank you. Check out our website, academynorth.co.uk, the social media at Academy North One, and subscribe on Spotify and Apple for the podcast. Our next guest today has done a bit of everything in cricket. Eight years as a player at Notts with 142 games and over 5,000 runs. Moved on to coach Notts, winning two county championships. Moved on further now as director of cricket and a four-year stint as an England selector as well. Thanks for joining us, Mick Newell. How are you, mate? Good afternoon, gents. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Not too bad at all. Good, good. Uh, so, a bit of a weird time at the minute as we, uh, as we record this anyway. So, how are you getting on in lockdown at the minute? Uh, yeah, busy still, bizarrely. Um, you know, we, we're still three or four of us working in our cricket department, just trying to keep contact with staff and started ringing around members this week, which is another way the club can keep in touch with people. Um, and just trying to sort of start to understand the potential implications of this shutdown of cricket as well as everything else that's going on. Yeah, I think, have you kind of got any idea of that or is it all just wait and see at the minute? Well, the financial implications could be, you know, very big depending on what, as and when we can play any cricket. You know, there was an announcement now that we're not going to be playing till July at least. Yes. Yeah, um, if we do play in July, hopefully we can get a bit of T20 blast, which will make some money, and some four-day cricket, which will keep uh, keep the purists happy. So that 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 will sort of play out over the next few months. It's just unprecedented, isn't it? And uh, and very difficult for everybody. Uh, and cricket is a small part of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously, it was a tough time, but um, yes, yeah, so we jump into a bit of cricket, mate. Um, start with sort of your playing career, mate. Had a, like the Matty said, you had a good few years at Notts there. Was the highlight sort of the eighty-seven championship win? Because you obviously had a good year as well with a thousand runs that year, mate. I did, yes, I did. I mean, that was uh, probably my best season as a player, and I think for us, we won two trophies in eighty-seven and probably should have won three um, and, but uh, you know we, we had a terrific side then with Richard Hadley Sir Clive, uh, sorry Sir Richard Hadley and Clive Rice and, and various other players it was a tremendous time to be a notch player in a pretty star-studded dressing room uh, but you know I was always a very much a fringe player at that time in and out the side quite a lot particularly after 1988-89 um, and luckily for me I did the right thing by getting my coaching badges all lined up while I was still playing yeah, you've uh, you've set us up quite nicely there for the move into the uh, into the coaching world. Sort of, how difficult is it to make that step, or or is it difficult to go from playing straight into coaching? Um, it wasn't difficult for me. I, I sort of developed into the sort of second team coach, like the reserve team, that sort of thing. I think it's difficult when I see people now, you know, who go straight from first team player to first team coach. I think that's a very difficult step to make. So, you know, I had quite a long apprenticeship under various different uh, county coaches. Alan Ormrod came to us, who'd been at Lancashire. Mike Kendrick uh, was with us and Clive Rice was with us. So I had lots of different uh, people to learn from in terms of, of, of my coaching style and my management style. So I actually had quite a long period where I was just looking after really the younger players and very much on the fringe of the first team so it was, although I was only in my late 20s early 30s it felt the right thing to do and it certainly gave me a good good grounding for, for later on when I did take over the first team yeah as you say when you when you did take over two county championship wins 05 and 2010 how does that feel that's great, you know, this club, uh, our club's only won it six times in its history. Um, and I managed to play in 87 um, and, and coach twice. In, in, so I've been involved in half of those uh, successes. So, you know, four-day cricket, three-day cricket, as it was back then, is still, in our opinion, the pinnacle of the county game. So to have, to have got two coaching uh, championships on my record, I'm very proud of that. And it's a tremendous achievement by the players and two very interesting and contrasting uh, successful seasons. 
Yeah, so we're going to put you on the spot now. Uh, 2005, 2010, which team wins in a head-to-head? 2005 team wins, right. definitely. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. 2005 team was a very, very, very strong team. Um, I think 2010 was slightly less strong, if you like, and we, you know, we, we had a good lead in that competition and nearly threw it away at the, went at the end and uh, got over the line at Old Trafford, ironically. Yeah. Uh, up your neck of the woods. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that, I think yeah. the five team, the five team was a better team. The ten, the ten success was probably a greater success, a greater feeling of success. Brilliant. So yeah, I remember watching that that game at Old Trafford and the the last gasp kind of win. Mm. Um, so also yeah. through your time as coach, a lot of produced a lot of England players. Um, how difficult is that kind of to find a balance at times between pushing players through to England and keeping the county as strong as possible? It's a big challenge. I mean, we're not a big county. You know, we're a test match ground, but we're probably the smallest of the six test match grounds. And we're not a big county in terms of population and cricket players. So I think, you know, in four-day cricket, it felt to me for a number of years that we punched above our weight. Um, and to do that, we did bring in a lot of players from outside outside of Nottingham, and we got some stick for that at the time. But in general, I think most of those players... I think I'd like to think we improved and made better. And as you said, a number of them then went on to play for England. So you then had to look for new new ones underneath. Um, and Graham Swan, Ryan Sidebottom will be two good examples of players who, you know, weren't really featuring heavily anywhere near the England setup until they came to Knotts. And we hope them hopefully help them improve, move them on, and then replace them if you like with somebody like Samit Patel or Harry Gurney coming in underneath them. Yeah, I think we've been we've been really fortunate actually to speak to to a few of the knots lads and a, a few lads who've joined as young players and moved on into knots. Do you think they kind of see that as a progression? You know, we've spoken to to Joe Clark and Ben Duckett who were you know t- speaking very highly of their move to knots and potentially England ambitions as well. Yeah, it varies, doesn't it? So you've got given me two good examples there of players who have done very very well, mainly in Division Two, um, and mainly and. But, possibly then were not being quite picked up by England because a lot of their stats and their good numbers were in Division 2 so they wanted to test themselves in Division 1 James Taylor actually would be a good example of that going back a few years further so you've got players there that wanted to get into Division 1 and saw knots as a a way of doing that although obviously we've got to fight our way back again now and then you've got other players like Stephen Mullaney who were, were very good cricketers at Lancashire but just couldn't get into their first team Lancashire had a number of Stephen Mullaney type cricketers all round as bat six, seven, eight, bowl yeah. seniors. We didn't have those type of cricketers. So coming to us at the time that Stephen came in 2010 was a perfect timing because I don't think, I don't know that he would have made a breakthrough at Lancashire anywhere near as quickly as he made a breakthrough at Notts. Yeah, it's definitely worked out very well for him. Um, so just moving on with your own sort of path and career, now director of cricket. Um, mm-hmm. I guess just briefly, without sounding too ignorant, what does that entail on a day-to-day basis? Um, well, very much the sort of administration and management of the squad, of the playing squad, of the coaching staff, of uh, backroom backroom staff, including groundsmen um, and, uh, and, and all the uh, the coaches, the science and medicine people who work for us, the cricket administrative work. Uh, so I oversee all of that. I'm very much involved in contract negotiations. Uh, very much linking in with the general committee at the club, so sort of managing upwards as well as managing downwards, making yeah. sure they're fully informed of decisions um, and working very closely with the head coach, Peter Moores at the moment, in signing new players, overseas players and English players and really giving our players everything we can, every support we can so that, so that they can perform at the very best level they can. Great. Just a quick one there, mate. I saw an article that, um, about you talking about the county championship and possibly having a couple of fixtures 
uh, overseas, like the West Indies or UAE. Um, mm. With a view to sort of helping England's away form, what are your thoughts on that, mate? Well, again, at the time, before before where we are now, I thought it was a very good idea. I think, you know, the amount of streaming that can be done online now, I think a lot of uh, members would have watched that sort of cricket, even if they couldn't travel to. I think we were touring Barbados at the time. I had that first conversation. A lot of counties going to the UAE, some counties going to South Africa. So, you know, the idea of maybe taking six, six teams to each place and playing a couple of games each and just trying to spread out the county season a little bit, I thought was a good idea. I think the whole uh, environment's probably changed in recent months and that might not be possible. But, you know, you've only got to look at Test Match cricket to realise how much it is dominated by home teams, how good England's record is in England compared to away from home. So maybe yeah. giving our players some exposure to foreign conditions at county level would have helped. Do you think, just just quickly on that, do you think we've kind of, as English well, cricketers and yourself, but England cricket fans, we've seen the flip side of that. I'm just thinking off the top of my head and Labashane coming into the Ashes last year, who'd done two months at Glamorgan in English conditions and it definitely helped him, I think. Yeah, I do. And I think, I think a lot of overseas players, uh, maybe not so many now, he's a very good example of someone who's done it recently, but it, it, going back 15, 20 years... They did do that deliberately to improve their cricketing education and their cricketing, uh, the broadening their cricket knowledge. I think Labuschagne is an excellent example of someone who benefited fantastically from his spell at Glamorgan. Um, so yeah, look, I think I think you know the idea of an Englishman going to play for an Australian state is pretty unheard of, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas Australians coming to play over here is very much more common. But you know we have a different game over here. We have a, a county game that does support a lot of memberships and a lot of interest within the stadium and I think we have a have a duty to try and get some of the best players in the world over here if we can yep. yeah brilliant um, just a quick one on the um, England selection as well mate how, how mm. hard is that obviously it's not just looking at stats and things uh, what sort of things do you sort of go into is like the divisions they're playing in or different things like that mate yeah there was you know I think I, I, I was someone who spent a lot of time initially through the sort of years between about 2007 and 16 knots were in Division 1 all the time so I spent a lot of time at watching Division 1 cricket and then as I became a selector in 14 you started to watch more Division 2 and you could see in my opinion you could see a difference in standard between Division 1 and Division 2 so you had to weigh up how good somebody was if they were scoring big runs in Division 2 and how relevant that was and how applicable that was um, it was a great job I loved it for four years we were part of some some good times and some difficult times, uh, but it's a real honour to be sitting around. We, we all pick England teams, don't we? We all sit around the pub and pick an yeah, England yeah. team or any sort of team, and there I was actually doing it for a living. So that was great. <laughs> yeah, me, me and Steve have been doing it for the last three, four weeks. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, just moving on before we go into into your best team that we've picked, as you say. Um, yeah. Academy North and, and kind of our day-to-day -day is coaching, but we do a lot of tours and tournaments, etc. as well. So we're just very, very interested in, in people with your experience and stuff. Just to kind of give us, we've got a lot of young cricketers with us. You know, the, the best bit of advice you can think of for a young cricketer looking to push on further? Uh, well, just realise what a great game it is and what an opportunity it can give you in life. I mean, I, I say to youngsters whenever I do a school talk or whatever, I say I've, I don't think I've ever been to work. I don't feel like I've ever had a real job because my hobby has been my job and I'm very lucky on that. I'm 55 now um, and playing and coaching and directing. So if you can find something like cricket or like running or like horse riding, whatever it is that you are passionate about and you can turn that into a job, imagine what a great feeling that is every day. Yeah, um, so I think enjoy it, love it, love the game. And if you can find something that you're really passionate about and you can make some money and have a life out of it, it's even better. 
Brilliant. Spot on. There's a great bit of advice. So, Nick, we'll move into into your best team. Um, mm. We've got we've got a few reserves as well, but we'll start with the eleven. Uh, very yeah. very clever decision to get a match official in at the top. Chris Broad. <laughs> Tactically, I've got a, I've got a match referee and an umpire opening the batting. Yeah, I? you've yeah, thought yeah. that one yeah. through. Yeah. yeah. So, well, this was a really interesting one for me for, to be asked by you guys to do this because then I had to think back over players I've played with and players I've coached, and it's interesting because my opening bats and Broad and Robinson were opening for knots in the mid-80s, mid to late-80s. Um, and I don't think we've had a pair of opening batsmen since then that have been anywhere near comparable. We had a little bit of uh, Jason Gallion from Lancashire and yeah. uh, Darren Bicknell from Surrey. Yeah. Similar, one right, one left-hander, one tall, um, so one captain, so very similar, actually. But I think Broad and Robinson, for the way they played for England through the late-80s, also the fact that because they played for England, that gave me the opportunity to get in the team. Uh, I've decided to pick them as my opening batsman. Brilliant. Well, just on, we mentioned sort of match official there, Chris Broad. Um, we do a little bit of research before we do these podcasts. And like we say, he's in charge of the rules these days, but I, or the laws. I found a, a cracking video of him smashing his own stumps out the ground <laughs> in 1988. Yeah. Followed up by an article about when he kicked off a, a, an umpire for an LBW decision. <laughs> so, yep. Was he always quite a fiery temperament at the time or...? He, he was. I mean, if you'd have said to me that he was going to become a referee, having caused... Well, there weren't referees when he was playing, but he would have caused referees an awful lot of issues as a player. <laughs> uh, it's a quite the classic poacher turn gamekeeper, if ever there was one. Um, but he's got a great great gig now, travelling the world, or he was, travelling the world, umpiring, or, uh, sorry, refereeing. Um, but no, it was never a career that I saw him going down. <laughs> yeah, that's so yeah you, 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 you've touched on him there, mate, as a partner, Tim Robson. I think that's 21 years at Knott's. Spent a lot of big career there. Yeah, Tim played for a long, long time. Captain for a, for a long time as well. I was a you know terrific player, very very strong leg sided opening batsman with a real love of batting. Um, quite a, like a lot of batsmen, quite selfish, quite wrapped up in their own game. Um, which, is, but it's bizarrely, it's always batsmen that end up as captain, isn't it? But um, yeah. you know, he he certainly led the club with a lot of pride, and, and he's a vice president of the club now as well as being an umpire who's done quite a lot of one-day cricket um, international level as well. Yeah, brilliant. So, yeah, you got you got your referee, you got your umpire. Um, so, yeah. m- moving, <laughs> moving on, at, at number three, you mentioned captains there. Uh, we've got Stephen Fleming. Yeah. So, yeah, so Stephen Fleming, we signed at the end of the 2004 season when we won Division 2. Uh, Jason Galliano was captain in 2004, and it was one of the hardest decisions of my coaching career to tell Jason that for 2005 he wasn't going to be captain even though he'd led the team to promotion um, but having signed or having had the opportunity to sign Stephen Fleming it seemed to me that if you signed Fleming but you didn't make him captain you were only signing 75% of him Right. so yeah. to get the best out of, of him and to get the best out of our club I thought an iconic leader and having played myself under Clive Rice I think if you get an iconic leader that players want to follow then hopefully the other players will raise their game to that level because they want that iconic leader to think highly of them. Yeah. I always thought I wanted Clive Rice to think I was a half-decent player. <laughs> and I think our players under Stephen Fleming wanted Stephen Fleming's respect as players. That's why we made him captain. Great insight. Yeah, so is that, yeah, so that's literally what I was going to ask you, mate, because obviously he did have a huge reputation and I saw a quote from Shane Warne saying he was the, the best captain in world cricket. So he's obviously doing something right, wasn't he? Well, they were, that, that's a good story, actually. So they were the most opposite characters you can ever imagine. And they had a great respect and a great friendship for. And I don't know if you remember, but Shane Warne got 99 in a test match yeah, against yeah. New Zealand. And Stephen Fleming was captain. And he actually put everybody back so that 
one could nick a single and have his hundred. Oh, okay. One slogged it. One slogged it straight <laughs> up in the air because his ego probably was telling him to get to his hundred with a six. So they they got on brilliantly. Um, I got a, a little story about a 2005 championship, which kind of soured that relationship. Was that when we played Kent with one the next to last round of matches, we had Hampshire left to play, which was building to be the championship decider. Yeah. But the third team that could win it was Kent. And uh, a lot of rain around. Anyway, Kent were desperate to win the game. And on the last day, they came to us looking for a run chase. And Fleming offered David Fulton, who was their captain, 420 off 70 overs, thinking <laughs> it would be a bit of a joke. And of course, David Fulton <laughs> took it. Uh, we bowled Kent out for 260 or something like that and won the championship with a game to spare. So oh. that completely killed the Warren Fleming friendship. Um, <laughs> But we did enjoy the next week when we went down to Hampshire with the trophy already pocketed. I'm, be- I'm <laughs> guessing Shane Warren was pleasant that week. Oh, he was spewing. <laughs> so, and they smashed us. They, they 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 hammered us in a four-day game. I don't think we were in fit state to play. Um, and we followed the four-day with a 40-over match, as it was at the time. Yeah. And the 40-over match was winner winner stays up, loser gets relegated. And of course, we turned up for that and won that. So <laughs> not only did we took him to the championship, we then relegated him in the 40-over league the next week. <laughs> Just, uh, good times. Yeah, very good. Just quickly on Stephen Fleming, um, you know, the way you've talked about him as a leader. Obviously, he's done a massive stint now as coach and mentor at the IPL. I'm guessing that's mm. no surprise. No, it's not. It's an interesting life now for, for people like that. You know, people yeah. have said, why doesn't he come and coach at Knotts? Or why doesn't he come and coach in the county game? But, you know, the IPL is such a, you know, it's a two-month tournament with money in it that's just way above anything that county cricket's ever going to have. Yeah. So I can totally see how he, why he wouldn't want to um, enter full-time coaching. But at the same time, he's got such a calm personality and a very well-respected and he's obviously got a great relationship there with MS Dhoni. Yeah. They basically run that, you know, that uh, Chennai Super Kings franchise very well. And, you know, he, he, he's seen a lot of coaches come and go in the IPL. And I think he's the one bloke who's been a constant all the way through. I think he is. Yeah, I think he's literally the only one. And might have something to do with yeah. him never losing the toss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of someone who did well in the IPL, number four, you've got Kevin Peterson. Yeah, well, this was a, this was an easy pick, really. I mean, Kevin was without doubt the best player that we've ever uh, coached or played with at, uh, at Notts. You know, he was probably the first name on the team sheet here. Fantastically talented player, uh, hugely interesting character. But you know, in terms of tell me what your best team is, and it was great to put him in that because he did play one season with David Hussey in two thousand four. Um, but then when we signed Fleming for two thousand five, that was the year that Peterson left us and went to play for Hampshire. So they they never uh, played in the same team, which was a real shame because I think Fleming and Peterson would have been quite a good relationship. Yeah, yeah, he's not not done too badly anyway with his eight thousand Test runs. Um, you mentioned they obviously difficult character. Everybody everybody knows things that have gone on. How tough is that? Sort of you've you know coached and played having characters like that in the dressing room and pulling everyone together. It's, it's difficult. I think it depends. A lot of the time, players will put up with most things, provided the difficult character is playing well, yeah. scoring runs yeah. or taking wickets or setting a good example. I think the problem comes when the difficult character stops being the great player. Yeah. So I think that's where he got to with England a little bit at the end. And I think, Kevin, the better he played, the worse he behaves. Right. And the worse he plays, the better he behaves. It's a fairly simple way of terming it. And, you know, there were those indications of that when he was with us. Um, and you think, well, he can't be like that with the country because you, you can swap con- uh, counties quite easily. But once you've committed to play for England, you can't really swap countries. Well, I think if you get to the end of his time with England, 
you know, he probably was looking, thinking about swapping countries and going back to play for South Africa. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. certainly he became a very difficult character for, for Strauss and Flower and then Alistair Cook to try and manage that. Yeah, yeah. We, we all know how it ended. Um, so, mm. <laughs> moving on, um, a man with 28,000 career runs, you mentioned him before, Dave Hussey. Yeah, David Hussey was one of my very first signings. Uh, and interestingly, you know, uh, he wouldn't get into this country to play cricket now because the, the regulations and the rules have changed now. So it's very difficult for non-internationals yeah. to get into county cricket. Whereas when we first signed David, he was only playing for Victoria. Nobody really knew who he was. He was almost unheard of. Um, we got a bit of a tip-off that he was this uh, exciting middle-order player um, good field, a great bloke. And of course, he was all of those things. Yeah. So he spent a lot of time with us on and off over a period of about eight, nine or ten years. Um, fitted in brilliantly, played a number of years with, with uh, Fleming and with Reed and with Swan. Yeah. And just just fitted into our squad brilliantly. And it's as I say, nowadays, you wouldn't get the working visa to come and play in this country. So we were very lucky to get hold of him and have him for as many years as we did. Yeah, he was. Obviously, he was brilliant. Yeah, it's one thing I was talking about now, mate, is um, obviously you get a lot of overseas coming over for, you know, tournaments for a few weeks or a few months or half a season. But like you mm. said, he was there for, I think it was nine years. That must yeah. have been amazing for sort of the younger lads in the dressing room to keep learning from him for so long. Yeah, absolutely. It's so hard now to build those relationships. You know, we've had overseas players that turn up for four weeks now and you never see them again. Uh, so they can't have an influence on your club, really. Whereas somebody like that, eight, nine years, of course, um, you know, even Fleming, we've got three years out of. You know, that, that can leave a lasting legacy in terms of people. And they, as I say, I, I really believe if you get the good blokes and the good players, they lift the standards and they lift the work ethic and they lift the um, commitment of players around them. And I would certainly say that as a club, we were very lucky to have David Hussey play for us for that length of time. How unfortunate not to play test cricket. I mean, obviously the era of Australian batsmen he was in, but he couldn't have done much more, could he? No, he couldn't have done much more. I mean, I, I, I didn't realise until recently that Stuart Law only played one test match, I think. Is that right? One Stuart test, Law, match, one one test, test match, match, got 50 not out and never played again. Right. Well, I find that, see, that's staggering because I think, you know, Stuart Law, I think, was an immaculate player. Uh, yeah. Stylish brave, combative, you know, wonderful player to play one test. So I don't think Huss would feel particularly distraught at not playing test cricket. I think he would feel he could have played a bit more one-day cricket and probably more T20 cricket for Australia. Um, but I think in general, his white ball batting was of a higher level, right. perhaps than his red ball batting for playing at the very top of his game. Brilliant. Yeah, great player. Um, yeah, on to number six, mate, you've got Clive Rice. Yeah, Clive Rice. So Clive Rice was the captain when I first walked into the dressing room at Trent Bridge in 1984. Um, held in huge respect by the other players. Um, absolute, very brave, very committed, very confident, very passionate about his cricket and led by a wonderful example. And you just wanted his respect. You just wanted him to think you were a half-decent bloke and a half-decent player. Uh, and that was a real uh, change for Knotts because Knotts through the late 70s had been really average. Uh, but once Rice became captain and they put him together with Hadley, Notts really turned a corner with those two fantastic overseas players. Yeah, brilliant. We'll come on to Hadley in a bit, but sandwiched in the middle, um, like I said before, we've spoken to quite a few lads at Notts and he pops up in every team. Chris Reid? Yeah, he does. Uh, I'm sure he does with the younger lads. It was an interesting one for me because there would be an obvious competition there with Bruce French, yeah. who, who played through the 80s and 90s. And I, and I did... I did wonder about that one. Uh, I think wicket-keeping wise, there wouldn't be much between them. They were both immaculate wicket-keepers, neat, tidy, 
uh, unnoticed to a large extent, loved wicket-keeping, real keeping balls. Um, you know, <laughs> Frenchy, Frenchy now, we can keep coach, uh, we can keep coach for England. Yeah. And Reedy, that's Reedy's dream, jo- dream job, I think. Um, <laughs> but not particularly interested in necessarily coaching a team or coaching a wider group, but you just give them some wicket-keepers and a bit of chat and they absolutely love it. So I think from a wicket-keeping perspective, very, very similar. I think what tips it for Reed would be his batting. Yeah. over Bruce. Bruce wasn't a bad batter, but Reedy's record is outstanding and his record of getting knots out of trouble is even more outstanding. So, you know, quite often on our seeming green pitches at Trent Bridge, we'd be 100 for five and then he'd go get us out of trouble and we'd, and we'd be 270 all out or 300 all out. And, you know, when we were playing really good cricket, generally Chris Reed was scoring a lot of runs and leading us very well. Yeah, you say that about leading. Obviously, you had Clive Rice as well. You know, sort of good leaders like that through over long periods of time. Do you find they have many sort of similarities or does each have their own very unique leadership style? That's a good question. I mean, I've got, I'm looking at my team on my phone here. I've got three different, four different club captains. Yeah, I think, we're going to ask there. you that at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's an interesting, and I would say all very different, all very different. I mean, Reed stood next to Fleming for three years while Fleming was captain and probably learned an awful lot. Yeah, but they, but doesn't didn't do things in the style of Fleming, but probably learned an awful lot um, and was a very good leader by example, um, quiet quietly spoken, um, but but set a fantastic. You know, he was the fittest in the squad, fittest in the in the dressing room, top of all the tests, got us out of trouble a lot. You know, you couldn't really point the finger at him and say, "Come on, really pull your finger out." Nobody could accuse him of of slacking enough, and I think that was the greatest way that he set an example. Yeah, do you think, I mean, it's probably a question that, that's come up a lot with Chris Reid about, was he unlucky with England not to play a bit more international cricket? Well, yeah, I mean, he was unlucky. I mean, he's, he can, uh, people say about him and Foster as the best keepers, yeah. um, you know, Miles ahead of other keepers. Uh, but I think there was uh, one or two England coaches or one in particular in Fletcher who didn't really rate his batting at all yeah. and felt that he tended to bottle out of tough situations. I think that's very harsh. Yeah. Um, so they then they were looking for perhaps more runs from their keeper and less less uh, keeping ability. And they certainly went down that road with other people that they picked. And, yeah. you know, England still did well under, under Duncan Fletcher and, and Geraint Jones would be a good example of someone who wasn't as good a keeper as Chris Reid never, never would claim to have been. Yeah. But he would, would score runs under pressure so therefore Fletcher would feel it was justifiable selection yeah okay fair enough yeah. yes you've got the uh, you mentioned before the genius at number 8 in Richard Hadley yeah so Richard Hadley was also there in 84 when I arrived him and Rice were very tight very close friends uh, fantastically self-motivated world-class bowler um, who became a better batsman as his career went on um, and just because of his drive to succeed his drive to win set a wonderful example for us to, to try and try and learn from. I uh, found it quite difficult to articulate how we could learn from him verbally, but by watching him uh, and by watching him bowl or standing at slip or standing at short leg as I did, you know, you could see when batsmen were facing him how highly rated they, they thought, you know, how much they thought of Richard Hadley as a bowler. Yeah, just just on him there, but obviously he's seen as one of the best ball runners ever, isn't he? I think in the 80s you had himself... Both of them, Imran Khan and yeah. Tough question yeah. for you. Can you rank them for there? <laughs> um, well, I was thought you were going to ask me. I mean, first of all, I'd say if you had Hadley's bowling with Rice's batting, you would have had a wonderful cricketer because yeah. I think that would be their strength would just be there. Um, I think Hadley the best bowler of those four that you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, and probably the weakest batter. Right. So possibly with Imran, the second weakest batter and the second best bowler. 
um, and then perhaps Botham and then Capel, something like that. Yeah. But, no, you, you know, as I say, most all-rounders, one skill is slightly better than the other. Yeah. And I would say Hadley was a better bowler and Rice was a better batter. But, but you'd probably take all of them in your squad, so... You, <laughs> four, if you could have four overseas players, what a great uh, dream that would be. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving on, a man who's been there and done it for England, over 400 international wickets. We've got Graham Swamp. Yeah, really interesting with Swanee. So we signed him... Um, I think it was for the 2005 season. Um, we'd come up in 2004 again without a huge amount of spin. I can't think back to where our spin attack would have been then. Uh, but the opportunity once we went back up into Division One uh, was to sign Gray. I think so we had a bit of uh, yeah, we had a bit of Stuart McGill that previous year. Yeah. Uh, but to get Swan involved, he was at North Ants at the time. His career was drifting. He was falling out with coaches. He was falling out of love with the game. Uh, we played against him. Uh, there was talk of him coming up to Lancashire uh, at the same time as they were going to sign Murrelitheran and form a bit of a spin attack. Yeah. Um, but we, we got in there first and managed to persuade to come to Nottingham. Um, and Fleming and Reed actually. Fleming and Reed really got the best out of him, the way they talked to him, the way they made him realise at times he was wasting his talent. Um, those two, I think, take a huge amount of credit for Swanee then getting back into the England setup. Yeah, he was, he was a pretty handy batsman at that point as well, wasn't he? But maybe his bowling then took over a little bit more. Yeah, I think at um, North Ants he was probably batting as high as six or seven. Yeah, I think when he came to us, he was more down at eight and nine. And he used to drive me mad, you know, with his batting because he never seemed to really understand the situation of the game. He just wanted to show off. Would be my uh, assessment of his batting. Um, but certainly in those early days with us, he came from North Ants where they played on big spinning pitches with a reputation for being a big spinner of the ball. And, of course, at Trent Bridge, it wasn't really spinning. We were playing four fast bowlers. And he had a different job to do, but he learned very quickly. And I think that stood him in good stead when he went up to England, yeah. where the pitches were generally flatter and more difficult to bowl on for a spinner. Uh, and he did a fantastic job, you know, under Flower and um, Strauss in particular around that time in yeah. terms of helping England win the Ashes in Australia yeah. and in England. Did a great job. You said there with his batting, um, you just felt like he liked to show off. Was that a reflection of maybe his uh, his bubbly character, shall we say? You may call it bubbly character. <laughs> I might call it something else. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah, I mean that's what he wants to do. You know, he was one of the first people to play the reverse sweep on a regular basis. Uh, he liked to attack the ball. He liked to he liked to give commentary on his batting as well. Um, and and you know there were times when he could knuckle down. He, we we have a, a great relationship with Graham. He just he just used to drive me mad at times. But um, I think he focused more and more on his bowling. I remember what turned it in particular was it the 2007 World Cup, England in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, he was watching that in the gym, doing his training with us. And I think he realised that uh, there were people in that squad of far less ability than him. Yeah. And what was he doing? What was he going to do about that? And I remember him and Fleming talking about it. And I remember talking to Jeff Miller about him and everything like that. And they did, they got him involved in the next 18 months. And of course, once he was in, he never came out. Yeah, stayed there. Yeah, yeah on to uh, number 10. It's the first team we've had a lad and dad in. We've got Stuart Broad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, father and son playing in the same team. Uh, yeah, we've been very lucky to have Stuart with us. I mean, Stuart hasn't played for obvious reasons, the number of games for knocks that other people have done because he's not available and where the international calendar is now and the demands on centrally contracted players. But, you know, he's put in some great performances for us over the years. Um, and I think we're very grateful that he, he came back to the club that his father played for because that was part of the part of the draw for him to come back to knocks was to, to, to come and play on Trent Bridge where he used to knock around when he was four or five years of age. 
Yeah, you're you're probably the, the perfect person in the world to answer this question too. He's big, he's bad, but is he better than his dad? <laughs> he's a lot better. He's a better <laughs> bloke or better cricketer? <laughs> I'll let you. Pick. He's a nice bloke. Yeah. <laughs> um, would they get on in the changing room, them two, playing in the same team? Oh, that's a good question. I reckon there'd be some fireworks, I think, between those two. I think there would be. I suppose I do the thing that wouldn't have helped was that Chris used to stand at uh, first or second slip and he wasn't very good. So <laughs> if, he'd have, if he'd have dropped catches off Stuart, that would have been quite good. More <laughs> stumps flying, Jacko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> be the sun kicking the stumps out the ground like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> number 11 you mentioned him before um, great leg spinner Stuart McGill oh yeah wonderful I mean I was very lucky in that Clive Rice signed him for Knotts uh, just before Clive Rice left the club in the middle of 2002 so we had this new overseas player coming in uh, for six weeks uh, I think we'd had Nicky Boyer South African all-rounder yeah, yeah, yeah. and then Stuart came in for six weeks and made a huge impression he got wickets uh, on his debut at Kidderminster he got I think it was 16 wickets in his second match at Trent Bridge uh, when Strauss was playing for Middlesex, Strauss made a brilliant 150, but McGill got 8 and 8, uh, and KP got 290. I mean, it was a hell of a game. Um, so he made a huge instant impression. We managed to get him back in three when we got relegated, not so good. Four, we got promoted again, um, and he was with us most of that season. He was terrific, uh, wonderful bowler, huge spinner of the ball, and a uh, great expert on wine. What more could you want? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, um, sorry, 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 just quickly. Um, I don't want to say unlucky because everyone knows how good he is, but do you think underrated because you didn't have that exposure at international level, obviously, because of Shane Warne? Yes, I think he probably was underrated and, and not as well known, obviously, by a long way. Yeah. I mean, I, he, I thought he was a genius. He could spin the ball enormous amounts. I suppose because he used to try and spin the ball so much, he probably had more bad balls in him than yeah. Warren. I'm not saying Warren didn't spin it, but, you know, I think if you try and spin the ball really hard as a leg spinner, perhaps at times you can be prone to more short balls or full tosses. And I think Stuart had more bad balls in him. But I yeah. think his best ball was, a, you know, absolute genius. Um, but difficult for Australia, unless they were in certain parts of the world, to get both of them in the same team. Yeah, of course. Definitely. Um, great 11, mate. Can you pick a captain out of that side for us? Uh, it would have to be Fleming or Rice. Um, probably, probably Rice. I think, given given everything he he was across the club. You know, he was he was yeah. player. He was captain. He was became coach. He was a vice president before he passed away. I think he's and and also for the state of the club when he came in. Yeah. You know, Fleming, as I say, took over a team that had just got promoted. So slightly easier, although an interesting group of characters. Whereas Rice came into a team that was perennial, you know, bottom of the table, yeah. down the bottom with Derby. You know, if we can beat Derby, we've had a good season sort of attitude. Um, so Rice, <laughs> I think, dragged the club up from the real pit. Uh, so I'll probably just give it to Ricey on that. Yeah, so obviously, mate, you've, with the career you've had and the players you've coached and played with, there's going to be a few missed outs. So we've got a few little reserves to run through here, mate. And uh, mm. but Derek Randall first. Yeah, Derek Randall, so obviously, you know, one of the most famous cricketers from Knots of all time, wonderful player, great fielder, complete lunatic. Uh, <laughs> and I, I changed next to him for the first four or five years of my career, which was, uh, you know, I used to start the season with a certain amount of kit and end it with half of that. And then he'd give it, his wife would give it all back to me. So we, we, we would just um, share kit, basically, over the course of the summer. He's a wonderful player and a great bloke. Yeah, you said about, if you if you Google him and do a bit of research, two of the first things that come up are unusual character and mm -hmm. unique character. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, completely mad. I raving mean, mad. I mean, you know, we just few silly stories about him, or you know, he was run out by a boycott at Trent Bridge on boycott's test comeback. Well, of all the places to run out, Derek Randall, you don't do it at Trent Bridge. And to be fair to, be fair to boycott, he made amends by getting a hundred. Um, but you know, he was just—he was a great bloke, and the crowd loved him, and he was a very, very eccentric. Uh, and he, but he loved his cricket, and he loved not. Yeah, brilliant. So moving on, a man who, who took over fifteen hundred first class wickets, Eddie Hemmings. Yeah, so Eddie um, was um, part of the furniture when I got to Notts. Was a great bowler. Was a was a real competitor. Again, really wanted to improve his game under Clive Rice, although perhaps wouldn't be wouldn't admit it because he would he would think it was uh, perhaps a bit of a weakness to say that you needed pushing by other people. But he did need pushing by Clive, and Clive uh, was very uh, reliant on Eddie as his one spinner around a four-seam attack in the same way as Graham Swan became very important to my teams around four-seamers. So you had that variety of an off-spin bowler. So him and Swan, quite similar in terms of what they brought to Notts in, in the team. Brilliant. Mm. So you, you, your next one, mate, you touched on before. Bit unlucky to miss out on the keeper spot, Bruce French. Yeah, Bruce, wonderful keeper. As I say, perhaps not quite as good a batter. I mean, he used to bat number eight mainly because we had Hadley at seven, I suppose. Yeah. Whereas French um, Reedy was always a seven all the way through his career, including possibly the occasion is six. Um, but a great wicketkeeper and, you know, loved his real ale, loved chatting about other stuff. You know, didn't really see him moving into coaching at all, if I'm honest, when he was right. player. But because you've now got this development of specialist coaches, somebody like him who has a real love of wicketkeeping has forged a coaching career, which I never would have seen coming. Yeah, superb. Moving on, uh, another, over, well, great overseas, but he turned Colpack in Andre Adams. Mm. Yeah, we. Uh, I think Andre first came to us as a second overseas. Uh, and the key thing there was that Fleming was captain. And I think Andre had played one test match at the time, or maybe no test matches. And his reputation in New Zealand wasn't all that flash as a bloke yeah. and as a player. And he was desperate to impress Fleming. So I think he came to us since 07 first as an overseas player, uh, put in some great performances. And then miraculously discovered that he'd got a Guyanese father, I think, <laughs> and a French mother. And we managed to get him as a Colpac player, as you mentioned, then for a number of seasons. And he was the closest thing to Hadley that I'd seen. Year after year, his bowling was just outrageous in county cricket. And as, if you go through that period of around, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, when we played some really good four-day cricket, including the championship in 10, he was a fantastic performer for us. And we got we got a huge value out of Andre. And it was a cracking celebration at Old Trafford when he ran off to deep backward point as well, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was quite an amazing day. Uh, because... Uh, you, you touched on it. I mean, Chanda Paul, we couldn't get Chanda Paul out for years, years and years. We just couldn't get him out. And we'd, and Andre always bowled round the wicket, a left-handed batsman, yeah. always. Yeah. Left-hander comes in, round the wicket. Okay, okay, Andre, whatever. Uh, Chanda Paul came in on that night. We needed one wicket to win the championship and he stayed over the wicket. So we're pulling our hair out. What is he doing? He never does this. <laughs> and of course, Chanda Paul nicked off first ball to Samit at third slip. And like you say, Samit went one way and Andre went the other way. And we all ran out. Yeah, we all ran off onto that old balcony at, um, at Old Trafford there. Yeah, I remember that. Um, but that Andre well. could do that. <laughs> so we've got another, another great theme of that. Ryan Sidebottom, mate. Yeah, well, Ryan came to us, you know, again, a little bit disenchanted with cricket. I think it was the 2004 season he started with us. A little bit disenchanted at Yorkshire. It wasn't getting the, the new ball on a regular basis. wasn't getting the, the opportunity to shine. 
Um, we were really very pleased to sign Ryan. He did brilliantly for us from four till ten. I think he was with us. He left us at the end of ten. And he actually came and played in that game we've just been talking about, having been left out by England, I think, of a one-day squad yeah. or something. And he came and played for us in that game. Uh, he got the vital runs. Him and uh, Darren Pattinson got the vital runs that got us the bonus point to, to give us a chance to get those three Lancashire wickets, which won us the title. So he was hugely committed to Notts. It was a shame he left us at the end of 10, but those things happened. He went on to do very well back at Yorkshire. Um, but we got six or seven really good years out of Ryan and you know he got into the England setup on the back of what he'd done for us. Yeah, yeah. obviously, superb player, but, but one question you might not have been expecting. Who had better hair, Bruce French or Ryan Sidebottom? So Ryan Sidebottom. Yeah. Ryan Sidebottom, best hair in county cricket. I can't think of anybody. I can't think of anybody with better hair than that. <laughs> Fair enough, superb. Next up, a man. I just wondering, did you play with and coach Paul Johnson? Uh, I didn't coach him for long. Coached him for about three months. I, I played with him since I was 15. Yeah. 14, 15. We played for Notts through the age groups. He became a pro at 15 and a half, which wow. is unheard of again now. Wow. So he was on the county staff for a long time. And then in 2002, when I took over, uh, he played out that year and then he joined the coaching staff after that. So he became part of our batting and uh, specialist coaching group. Um, so he, he, he was very uh, helpful in that area Led, you know again you look at n- numbers of runs who people have scored as I'm sure you guys do yeah. you know very few players have scored more runs for Knotts than Jono yeah. and you mentioned about Hussey earlier you know being unlucky well I think Jono very unlucky not to play for England in some yeah. format of the game um, and probably would have been a very very good T20 player had, he, had his career lasted a bit longer yeah yeah so on to yeah another Aussie Aussie seaman now a member of that great Aussie attack Peter Siddle yeah, since was interesting because he was only with us for about four months, but the first half of the 2014 season, we had him and Andre in full swing. Um, and then he had to go home and Andre pulled a calf or something. And we fell away in 2014 when we looked like we might win the championship. We were going really, really well. And we lost them both in the space of a couple of weeks. And, and we fell away quite badly from there. I can't remember where we finished, but we, we obviously didn't win it. Um, and he set a great example. He was... Um, he was um, arrived in the country with a, with his girlfriend. They were first thing he did was go on a meet meet not murder uh, demonstration in the market square with their banners because he'd become he'd turned radical vegan. Wow. So he, or meet his murder. That's it's what it's called, isn't it? Yeah, he went on a radical vegan uh, demonstration in Nottingham on his first weekend, wow. um, and and uh, and just at kale and bananas for four months. Perfect. A bit smelly in the dressing room, but perfect. Really. Funnily enough, I was about to ask you if he's as angry as he looks, but now I've just got a vision of him wandering around with a meat not murder meat is murder yeah. sign, so. meat is mur- that's what he had yeah holding his placard up like that yeah, don't he was a bit of a wild lad in his youth <laughs> a bit of a wild lad in his youth but his girlfriend who I think is now his wife she tamed him he was great value for us although he only did four months it was a shame yeah superb and, and last but certainly not least um, the greatest cricketer never to play for the West Indies Franklin Stevenson yeah and again what a lovely bloke and, and came into our club on the back of Rice and Hadley so joined Knotts in 88 and uh, in 87 Hadley had done the double he got a thousand runs and a hundred wickets and on his cricket bag he had mapped out Hadley exactly how he was going to do that he was going to get 600 <coughs> runs and uh, away from Trent Bridge or 400 at Trent Bridge because it was hard back at Trent Bridge and he was going to get 60 <laughs> wickets at home and 40 wickets away and he did the double 
and then Franklin rocked up the next year and didn't make any plans and got 125 wickets and needed, I think it was about 120 runs in, in going into the last match and he made 200s against Yorkshire in the last game of 1988 and, and had done the double. And I think, I'm pretty sure that's the last time the double's been done. I think and so. I'm pretty sure it's the last time the double will be done, yeah. given, given the reduction in fixtures now. And a more than handy golfer as well, I believe. He's a great golfer, yeah. We bumped into him a few times on our pre-season tour uh, in Barbados where he plays at the Sandy Lane or oh, Golf nice. Club, which I think is one of the better ones over there. And he yeah. teaches uh, rich Russian billionaires kids now, I think, how to play golf as well as playing himself. That's not a bad life. No, he's got a good life in Barbados <laughs> as well. <laughs> not bad at all. Um, yeah, so just before we let you go, I've got a few little questions for you, mate. Um, your favourite ground to play at, but we can't, have, we can't use Trent Bridge. Uh, well, I tell you what, I didn't, I didn't like playing at Lords because I always thought it was a bit too stuffy, and I didn't, I didn't really get it. But I love coaching at Lords. I loved t- taking the honour of taking my team to Lords, whether that was to play Middlesex or a final or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I would say Lords was a great ground to to, to coach at and to be part of. I, I I used to like Old Trafford. You know, I did quite well as a player at Old Trafford. I got a hundred and a, a ninety-nine up there, and it was obviously where I first watched cricket when I was five. So I had a great feeling of going back to. To Lancashire and playing up there was great for me. Superb. Next one, the most important question. Uh, the best teas? Uh, well, the best food was always at Lord's yeah. by a country mile. Um, more so the lunches. Uh, the lunches at Lord's, there was like a choice of three. You know, like if you go to a nice restaurant and there's a choice, and the, <laughs> that's what it was like at Lord's. And then you go, you go most other places and they just would put it in front of you. So there was always that, that look. And again, when you're coaching, you could just have a bigger lunch and just... <laughs> Slightly nod off on the balcony after lunch. Get, so, get the sunglasses on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretend you're watching. So there wouldn't be. I don't think you'd find too many cricketers that would uh, would go against Lords as the best food. <laughs> Definitely. Um, who's the best sledger you came across, mate? Uh, Murphy's I played against in '89. Oh. oh yeah. Uh, he did. He did rip me to shreds. Uh, <laughs> he was. He was not very impressed with what he saw. Uh, Michael Holding Michael Holding didn't really say very much he did he did mutter a couple of things at me he didn't need to did he? <laughs> no well he didn't need to uh, but he he did mutter a couple of things under his breath at one end I think he was asking questions of my partner as to what, whether my partner thought I was as bad a player as he did um, so but Murph Hughes was not shy uh, Alderman Terry Alderman yeah. he yeah. was quite quite aggressive as well but uh, yeah Murph Hughes because I think they came to Knotts to play just after they'd won the Ashes at, I think they might have wrapped it up at Old Trafford and came to us and of course there was no real interest in playing Knotts so he, <laughs> he, he hit me a few times and then he went and abused me when I was lying in the physio's room <laughs> <laughs> that's what you need it's not pleasant is it no. <laughs> um, kick a man while he's down and, uh, yeah. and la- last but not least Best in the dressing room. You going on tour? Who do you need with you? Swanee. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you need Swanee. You need Swanee with you in the dressing room. Uh, or now, I mean, now your your modern day knots player. I'll tell you, Luke Fletcher. I think. Yeah, we. But yeah, uh, heard that. Popular <laughs> heard that one before. Yeah. yeah, I think Swanee back in the day was was great value. Lots of impressions. Um, lots of. Uh, he, he didn't always pick the right moment, but in general, he was good value, good fun all the time. Yeah, superb. Oh wow, brilliant. I could honestly pick your brain all day, but I think that's uh, I think that's everything from us, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks again, Mick. Crack- you know, great insight into some more different players you haven't talked about as well there. So uh yeah, thanks for your time, mate.
Pleasure, guys. Anytime I can help, give us a shout. Cheers, cheers, Mick. Thank you. And everyone, check out our website, academynorth.co.uk, social media, at Academy North One. Mick, thanks again. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Cheers, Steve. Cheers, guys. Take care. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye.